So if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 1072. Now, some of you will not be old enough to remember this, but in January of 1988, a book was published with the title, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Do any of you remember that book? It sold 3 million copies. It became a very popular book for a few months. Uh, It uh, turned out to be wrong, in case you didn't know. Uh, You would think that that would have been the end of uh, the author's writing career, his name Edgar Wizenhart, Uh, but it was not uh, the end of his writing career, nor the end of the book. Uh, It was revised and republished in 1989, 1992, and 1996. Uh, For some people, it takes a long time to admit that they're wrong. Uh, But this whole philosophy, this whole... uh, understanding, interpretation of scripture did not start with uh, Edgar Weisenhart. Uh, In 1979, Colin Deal uh, published a book with much the same title. His was 101 Reasons Why Jesus uh, Will Return in 1988. And uh, his book as well has been reprinted since then with a little different title and a little different focus. Uh, but this, this teaching was going around for a number of years and it really be, reached a, a, a fever pitch in the two or three years leading up to uh, the first Friday of October, 1988. Uh, so I was a senior in high school, had uh, come to know Christ and, and only been walking with him for about six months in 1986 when the pastor of my church brought in someone who was a spokesperson for this movement. And I didn't know anything other than just to believe everything he said. I can remember the sermon he preached. He went through Bible verses. He explained what he thought those Bible verses meant. And he showed us, uh, at least to my satisfaction back then, uh, that Jesus Christ was going to return the first weekend of October 1988. It was a crazy thing. And I, I was just ignorant enough to believe it. Uh, By the way, people are still believing those kind of things. It was in Texas in 2014 that people began, some very prominent churches in Texas, began to teach that uh, the return of Christ would coincide with the lunar tetrard of uh, 2014 and 15. You may know it as the blood moons. And that became a very popular thing in Texas and around the country eventually. And that was the same wrong interpretation that uh, they had in 1988. But I believe what this man said. And so he gave some life application points at the end of his explanation uh, of, of why it is that he was certain that Christ would return in 1988. And he said that if you're about to go to college, you shouldn't go. And I remember that because I was about to go to college. Now, thankfully, I I went and didn't take his advice. But he said, don't go to college. He says, if you are in college, quit. If you have a job, quit. He says, if you're engaged to be married, you either need to get married immediately or you ought to call it off because there is such urgency. We have less than two years left. 
We must prepare for the return of Christ. He encouraged people to quit their jobs. He said, don't take a vacation, cash out all of your savings and retirement, give a bunch of it to him. He, he had all of these things that he wanted us to do. And he was telling us that we ought to take our entire lives, cancel all of our plans and make everything about preparing for Jesus Christ to return the first weekend of October, 1988. That was his instruction. Now, you and I know that Jesus did not return in 1988. The Bible says that he will return and perhaps it will be in 2018. Perhaps it'll be this afternoon, I don't know. But he did not return in 1988. And we further know that that would have been poor advice anyway. Uh, no preacher ought to stand up and say that you should set aside all plans, that, that, that you ought not do anything to prepare for the future, that you ought not go to work, that you ought not mow your lawn, that you ought not put anything in the freezer because Jesus Christ is coming back so soon. We can't know that. But people in that day, in the late 80s, began to live like that because everything was focused upon Jesus Christ returning the first week of October, 1988. Now, that's one extreme. What has happened, and is even worse than that, I believe, is that now many Christians have gone from that extreme all the way to the other side, and we have embraced the opposite extreme. If one extreme is to cancel all plans and wrap everything around uh, the, the fact that Christ is coming back immediately, the opposite error is to live our lives like God has no control and no plans for tomorrow. See, see I, I think one of the problems today is not that we, we are so wrapped up with, with, with the things of God that we, we neglect some parts of life. I think that we... Are, are, are so negligent of the things of God that oftentimes we live like there is no God. Uh, Craig Rochelle, a, a pastor in Oklahoma, popularized a, a, a phrase that I think describes this well. He, he said that he is a recovering Christian atheist. You ever heard that phrase before? A Christian atheist. And what he means by that is a person who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, a person who likely attends church every Sunday morning, but who lives his life as if God were not real. He, he says that he believes in God. He does, in fact, believe in God. He, his worship reflects that he believes in God, but he makes his plans day by day. He lives his life as if, as if God's not a part of that at all. A phrase that's perhaps more uh, well-known to you is uh, a nominal Christian. You ever heard somebody say that? What is a nominal Christian? That's someone who is Christian in name only. They claim to be followers of Christ, but you can't really tell in any real aspect of life. You can't see it on Tuesday morning. You can't see it in their future plans. You can't see it in the way that they spend their money. They are a Christian in name only. Uh, many years ago, pastors in America called those Sunday Christians. Have you ever heard that phrase, a Sunday Christian? Someone who is a Christian on Sundays, but the rest of the week, it just seems to have no real impact in their lives. Missionaries uh, through the years have used the word rice Christian. You ever heard that? 
a rice Christian. One of the problems sometimes on the mission field, especially ministering to very poor people, is that sometimes people will respond to the message, but not because they believe, only so that they can get some rice. It originally was rice and curry Christians. It came from Indonesia uh, back in the... uh, 1860s, I believe, people who would respond just for what they could get. There are so many people today who who profess Christ. There are those of us here this morning. We, We have a relationship with Christ. We do trust Christ. But the truth is we live our lives Monday through Saturday as if God weren't real. And so while one extreme would be the 88 reasons Christian, that he doesn't do anything that's not directly tied to being prepared for Christ to return next week. All the way on the other extreme, we have the Sunday Christian or the Christian atheist who who, who believes in Jesus, but for whom their life is not impacted hardly at all. When we come to the end of James chapter four, James addresses these Christian atheists. When we come to James chapter four, he's talking, he looks to his congregation and he sees people in his church who who have professed Christ, but there's there's no real evidence that day by day, week by week, that they're, that they're following Christ. And so he addresses these believers. And so I want us to read just two verses to start with, and we'll come back and read the rest of this before the sermon concludes, but two verses that really describe uh, what James would have called a Christian atheist and, and what I believe we have in our church and even sometimes in every one of us, this um, neglect of, of letting Christ's work filter throughout our lives. So let me ask you if you will to stand for just a moment. Let us honor God's word by reading these two verses. James chapter four. And we're going to read beginning in verse 13. The Bible says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Please be seated. Now, he describes these people in the first verse, verse 13, he describes these people who are making plans for their time, for their schedule, even for their money, that just don't include God. Now, we've said these things. We're guilty of this at least a little bit. I plan to do this, and I plan to do that, and two weeks from now, I'm going to take a trip here, and next year, I'm I'm planning a vacation over here, and here's what I'm going to do with this money, and here are my retirement plans, and here are my career and education plans, and so we're all making plans, but what he describes here are people who are making plans and never give a second thought to the fact that God owns what we say we own and God is in control of the future that we look to. And so then he says in verse 14, lest you don't understand in verse 13, he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. None of us know what's gonna happen tomorrow, right? None of us know what God's plan is for tomorrow. None of us know what our possessions are really gonna look like, our health is gonna look like tomorrow. None of us know what kind of opportunities we're gonna have tomorrow. And then that phrase that, just upsets us, I know, for your life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
Here we are thinking we have so much control over the stuff we have, the opportunities that are presented and the time that we will live when the truth is we have control over none of it. Now, what he's going to do in the next 10 verses is he's going to tell his congregation and he's going to tell us how it is that we're supposed to live. He's going to present to us the normal Christian life. Not the ordinary Christian life, not the way people ordinarily live out the Christian life, but here's the normal way to do it. Here's the right way to live the Christian life. Don't just say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Don't just say, I've got all of these plans with my, with my money, with my opportunities, and with my time. But the normal way to approach that is this. And he gives us four instructions in the next 10 verses. Instruction number one, he says to these Christian atheists, Live like God is in control. The first counsel he gives is just to live like God is in control. Now we're going to continue to read over these next 10 verses. Look at verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, Instead, so instead of just making your own plans, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. He says, don't just make your plans. Say, if the Lord allows, if the Lord wills for me to do this, then that's what I'm going to do. See, if we plan our future, if we make plans with our money and our time and our schedule and our opportunities that don't involve God, then that is the worst kind of, kind of arrogance. We, 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 we are completely saying that, that we're in control of everything, that is an example of arrogance. It's the worst kind of arrogance if we make our plans apart from God. Now, we're not the first people to do that. The first record of that that we have is with Satan himself. And so Satan, you may know, uh, was created as an angel of God, one of God's highest ranking angels until he rebelled. Now, what did Satan's rebellion look like? Well, let me read it to you. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. uh, Satan said this when he was still an angel. He said, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He said, I will do this. I will do this. I will do that. And God said, no, you won't. No, you won't. See, he presumed that he was in control when he was not in control. It was arrogance and it was the beginning of sin. Imagine if you were looking for a job and so you apply and are hired at one of the local banks here in town as a customer service representative. And so you're excited about your new job. It begins Monday morning. And so you're, you've been told to report it. 8.30, but you decide because you're so you know, excited about the new job that you're going to report about 15 minutes early. You, know, you want to make sure you're set and you, you want to certainly be on time your first day. So you get there about 8.15 and they let you, the security guard lets you into the bank and people, there are a few people milling around, others who have come early, but for the most part, the office area is empty. And so you wander around the office area. They have assigned you a desk. They did that when you were hired for the customer service rep job. But you look around and you find that there are better desks and there are better offices. And so you evaluate one to the other until you find the one that you like. 
Not the one that they've assigned you, but you know, first come, first serve. They should have gotten here a little earlier. And so you pick your own office and you pick your own desk. And so you sit down, you begin to make yourself comfortable. And then the owner of that desk comes in, maybe one of the vice presidents of the bank, and he says, or she says, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm the new customer service representative, and I like this office, and I like this desk, so I have made it my own. And so now you don't need to stand there because I got a lot of work to do. Uh, First, I have a couple of new projects that I've been thinking about for our bank for the last two or three weeks, and I need to get started on them. And I need to get started on my new project soon because I plan to take a three-hour lunch today, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want this to roll over into that time. Because when I get back from the lunch, there are some bank customers that I've always just been curious about their finances, and I'd like to call them and ask them a few questions. And so that's what I'm going to do this afternoon. I got to get that done because I'm probably going to take tomorrow off. And then the next day, I'm going to call a staff meeting as soon as I get here because there's some, just some new things I want us to do at the bank. Now, what do you think the vice president would say after hearing the new customer service representative share what his plans were? Probably you're fired, but at least who do you think you are, right? I mean, that'd be about the most arrogant thing. Don't you recognize that you're a customer service representative and this is the first day and I'm the vice president and this is my office and you better get out of my office and you don't get to choose your projects and you don't get to call and ask customers questions. You certainly are not going to call a staff meeting. And what do you mean you're going to take a three hour lunch? Nobody takes a three hour lunch. See, that would be the height of arrogance, just to show up first day and act like you own the bank. But we do that in our lives when we act like our stuff is ours and our future is ours. And we make plans with our stuff and with our future and we don't in any way attach God's will to that. God, this is your stuff. My resources are or resources that you've given to me. And and the future, if you give me another day, if you give me another year, that's a gift from you and you have a plan and I wanna make sure I live with the resources that you have given to me and the future that may be before me, I wanna live according to your plan. We need to recognize that it belongs to Christ. This day and any future days belong to him. This is his world and we report to him. Now notice in verse 15, it says that we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. It says we should say that. That means with words. Why does he suggest not just that we think about God's will, but that we say, I'm going to go on vacation in a month if the Lord wills. Why does he say to say that? Well, it's because our words are both indicative and determinative. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Our words are indicative, meaning that they indicate the condition of our hearts. If if you want to know what's in somebody's heart, you just listen to their words long enough and their words will tell you what's in their heart. And so if you're always saying what you're going to do with your stuff and your time and you never reference with your words that come out of your mouth, If the Lord wills, if this is suitable to the Lord, if the Lord gives me another day, if you never say that with your mouth, then that indicates you never think it with your heart and your mind. And so our words indicate our heart, but our words also determine our heart. How do you change your heart? 
Well, you change your words. And if you'll begin to say, and I know this is an old fashioned thing and people don't say this much anymore. And we need to be careful that we're not legalistic about this. You don't need to judge somebody because they don't say these words, but you and I need to say them. If you will say a year from now, I'm going to do this. If the Lord allows two years from now, my plan is this. If that's what the Lord wants me to do, I'm going to do this. If the Lord gives me the resources, if you will say that your words will become determinative, your words will determine your heart. And so he says, we need to say it. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, have you ever received a really formal letter in the mail, a signed letter, and under the signature, there were two initials, D-V, D-Delta, V-Victor, D-V. Have you ever received a letter like that, or maybe a really formal invitation? Uh, people still do this some. It, it's something that came from the Puritan era. The Puritans, when, when they would write a letter, and they would sign their names. They would always put DV at the bottom. What does that mean? Well, it stands for Deo Valente, God willing. And they got in this practice. And you'll, like I said, you'll still see this today. And oftentimes, you know, when the printer puts that on there, the printer himself doesn't know what it means. But, but you'll see in very formal writing, this DV, it means God willing. That needs to be a part, not just a formal invitations, wedding invitations of, or, or something, but it needs to be a part of how we live. With every statement we make, we're, even, we're either giving a nod to the sovereignty of God, if God wills, or we're giving a nod to our own arrogance. I'm in control of my own life. And so we have to choose, we have to choose. Proverbs 27, one says, don't boast about tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring. And so to go from, from an ordinary Christian life to a normal Christian life, to, to, to get out of this, this sphere of living as a Christian atheist, the first thing we need to do is to live like God is really in control. The second thing we need to do is simply to do what we know to do. If you know to do it, do it. Now look at verse 17, chapter four, verse 17, the last verse in that chapter. He says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Now there are four kinds of sins. We've said this before, four kinds of sin described in the Bible. One is the sin of commission. That's when you do something you shouldn't do. One is the sin of omission. When you fail to do what you ought to do, then there's the sin of influence. When you influence somebody else to sin, that's sin. And then there's the sin of tolerance when you tolerate sin uh, under your authority, under your influence. So, so this is that second kind of sin. It's the sin of omission. He says, if you know what to do and you don't do it, that is sin. Now, if you look at this in the context, so in these 12 verses all total, he's talking about Christian atheism. He's talking about people who profess Christ, who really do believe in Christ, but live their lives in a different way. And so he's talking about Christian atheism. And if you read this verse in that context, it's, it's reminding us that sometimes we are torn between what we know to do and obedience. Let me say that a different way. 
Oftentimes you hear Christians say something that I'm afraid is just not true. It's not always true. In fact, I don't think it's true very often. We say, I can't figure out what I ought to do. Have you said that recently? Some decision you've got to make and you just, you you pray about it and pray about it. And then you say, "I, I just can't figure out what I ought to do. I don't think God leaves Christians in that situation often. The Holy Spirit resides in me. And it's been my experience in life that the Holy Spirit is pretty clear about important decisions. I usually know what I ought to do. The problem is not knowing. The problem is doing, right? And oftentimes when people say, I don't know what I ought to do, the truth is they don't want to do what they know they ought to do. I remember several years ago, uh, I was leading a mission trip to Kenya. We were about a month out, three weeks out perhaps from, from departing, and there was unrest in Kenya, as there often is in uh, Kenya and Somalia and Tanzania. By the way, our Tanzania group is in Washington, D.C. right now, landed just a few minutes ago, and they'll be leaving out this afternoon, beginning to head back. Uh, but we were, we were headed to Kenya and some unrest, some political unrest taking place in Kenya. We really couldn't get a lot of information about what was going on. There had been some violence, but we didn't know where, if it was going to be in the same region, if it was going to affect us. We just didn't know. And so I was, it was up to me to make a decision whether we should go or we shouldn't go. And, and in those cases, sometimes God wants you to go anyway, and sometimes he, God does not. And I was trying to figure out, what should I do? What should I do? I was praying about it. I was collecting all the information I could from the news and other places. And, and, and I just, I was struggling. I didn't know what, should we go? Should I cancel? Should we go? Should I cancel? And I had a, a minister on staff, uh, uh, an older gentleman that uh, came and sat down with me and said something privately. He would never have said it in front of anybody. But he said, Pastor, uh, he said, is the, is the question really does God want you to go or not? Or is the question, are you going to be obedient to God or not? And you know what? He was right. I knew what I should do. And in that case, I knew God wanted us to go. It wasn't a matter of discernment. It was a matter of obedience. And so he says here in verse 17, to these Christian atheists, to people like you and me that sometimes live like God's like, like there's not a God. He says, we, we just need to do what we know God wants us to do. We need to do it. We need to do it. Uh, are you struggling with how it is that you're going to share the gospel with a friend or a family member? See, you're probably not struggling with how. If you think you're struggling with how, you're probably just struggling with obedience. Are are you struggling with how you're going to serve God over the next year? Well, you're probably not really struggling with how are you going to serve God. You're struggling with being obedient to God, to how God has already told you to do that. If we know what to do and we don't do it, that's sin. Let's not cover up our disobedience by saying we can't figure it out. Most of the time we know what God wants us to do. The question 
uh, is, is obedience. The question is obedience. Do you, do you remember, and everybody does, the Nike slogan that they've used since 1988 to sell athletic shoes? Uh, what is it? Just do it. Uh, no, anytime you buy a pair of Nike shoes, you paid about $50 just for that slogan. <laughs> just do it. Uh, it's, it's been one of the most effective advertising slogans in history. Uh, when they came up with the slogan in 1988, they had plateaued at $900 million worth of shoes sold every year worldwide. $900 million, they had plateaued. They came up with this just do it phrase, and in 10 years, they went from $900 million to $9 billion annually in shoes. Those are valuable words, just do it. Now, why are they so effective? Well, sometimes that's just what we need to hear. We just need to do it. And and what he's saying here to these Christian atheists, what he's saying to you and I is just do it. To know that we ought to do it and to fail to do it is sin. Just do it. Now, the third thing he tells us, if we're going to live a normal Christian life, is we need to measure everything with an eternal scale. When we measure the value of something, we need to measure it from the perspective of eternity. Now, let's continue to read. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, you do know that the chapter divisions, that wasn't a part of the original Bible. And so, some of these chapter divisions are in a really good place. Some of them are just in a funky place, and I have no idea why it is where it is. This is one of those. I don't know why uh, the division is here, but that's not a part of your Bible. That's just an organizational feature. Uh, to help us talk about it. So we're just going to continue to read chapter five, verse one. He says, come now you rich people weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. And so he's talking to rich people. Uh, that's you and me, right? So we measure wealth in our context by, I don't know, how big is your bank account and how big is your house or your car, something like that. Uh, but biblically, uh, rich would be someone who does not live at a subsistence level. And so if you've got an extra set of clothes, you're rich. If you've thrown away any food in the last week, you're rich. If you know and you're sure you're going to have food to eat tomorrow, you're rich. Okay, From a biblical point of view, you've got extra. You, you know where your food is coming from. So he's talking about people like me and you. Come now, you rich people, weep and well over the miseries that are coming on you, your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. And so even though you're wealthy, it's doing you no good, he says. Verse three, your gold and silver are corroded and their, uh, their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's scary, isn't it? You have stored up treasures in these last days. Look, the pay that you have withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. Uh, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. It's talking about this wealth that you have, that all of us in here have. And so if we value what the world calls wealth too highly, and we undervalue the things that God calls valuable, then we, our lives are less as a result. 
If we will be stingy instead of generous, if, if we will chase after the things of the world instead of chasing after the things of God, then we'll have wealth, we'll have worldly wealth, but, but we won't have the, the peace that comes from God. We, we won't have the, the, the things that God says are valuable. There's a difference. We need to measure with an eternal scale. Uh, on Friday morning, I visited one of the ladies in our church, been in the hospital for off and on for a couple of weeks now, uh, Brenda Williams. And she's had three different problems in the last week and a half. And I guess they're somehow connected, but I, I'm not a doctor. They look like three different problems to me because they're different parts of her body. And all three problems have been very serious, very serious problems. And she suffered. They, they've not just been serious. They've been difficult. For her, and so Friday morning, uh, so I, I, I saw her and her husband in ICU, and she said, "The Lord has been." Let me just back up. Had you just been an observer? Had you not? If you didn't understand the Bible, you would have thought what she said to me was a sign of lunacy. Okay, so here's what she said. So I said, "How are you doing? How are you doing?" Now listen, she's in a lot of pain and she's uh, blood clots in her legs and her chest and, and uh, all uh, other kind of problems. She, you don't need her medical rundown from her preacher, but uh, it's all kind of problems. So I said, how are you doing? Now if anybody was, sort of had permission to say, oh, when will this ever end? They get about that close to fixing one thing and then the one, another thing comes. When will this ever end? I'm tired of this hospital room. But she said, literally with tears in her eyes, she said, this has been the best two weeks. She said, I have seen God show me kindness a hundred different ways. And then she started listing them. And for the next 15 minutes, she went down a list of all the ways that God had showed her kindness through her family's care, her husband, uh, her church family, her friends, the hospital, the doctors, the, the, she bragged about the food, <laughs> all of these things. And I thought, you know, this just doesn't even make sense what you're saying, unless you're measuring things differently than the world. See, if we're gonna be a normal Christian, this is what he's saying in the first six verses, seven verses of chapter five, we just need to have a different measuring stick. I, I remember when my, my oldest two girls were young, they would get money, people would give them money or they would earn some money for doing something. And oftentimes when they were very young, it was in change. You know, they'd get quarters. And so I can remember, I think it was Hannah, I think this, this memory goes back to her, Hannah, my oldest, so she had like 20 quarters, she had a pile of quarters. And so I offered, and I gave her a pretty decent exchange rate to, uh, to convert those to dollar bills. And so I said, I'll give, you f I'll give you a $5 bill for those quarters. And you know what she said? No, no. I mean, I've got all of this, these quarters, they're shiny, they're, uh, they're heavy, they chinkle, you know, when you rub them together. And you're offering me a, a creased, wadded up green piece of paper for this? 
She didn't want to make the trade. And you know, the truth is, she wouldn't have made the trade had I offered her a $20 bill. She wouldn't have made the trade if I would have offered her a $100 bill. Because why would you want a a piece of wrinkled up paper when you can have all of this shiny change? And I would think if I had offered her the $100 bill, listen, I could buy every toy in your room for $100. I could, I mean, this would be for a four-year-old, this is like dream money. And you won't give me your 20 quarters for this. But you know, why is that? Because she and I had a different way of measuring the value. She thought it was valuable because it was shiny and heavy. I thought my $100 bill was valuable because I knew it's purchasing power. So you and I, we're investing our lives. Listen, we're investing our lives in some things that are shiny and heavy. And God looks at us and offers us his things of value an opportunity to invest in somebody's life, an opportunity to make a difference for the kingdom of God, an opportunity to see how God comes through when when you have to have God come through, the opportunity to know God's peace, the opportunity to experience answer to prayer. See, God offers us this, and and we, we, we measure it as having little or no value, and we hold on to our change. To, to live a normal Christian life, we, we need to measure with an eternal yardstick. I would love to say more about that, but I need to move on. The last thing, number four, we just need to be a good farmer. Look at uh, verse seven, uh, James 5, 7. He says, uh, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. Uh, let's just stop there a minute. I, I, I'm, I'm out of time, but I don't want to go so fast we miss this. That doesn't make sense to me at first glance. Be patient at the Lord's coming. And then it says at the end of verse eight, if you just skip down, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the Lord's coming is near, and I believe it is, the Bible says it is, I know it is, that doesn't make me patient. That makes me anxious. When when I think the Lord's coming is near, I all of a sudden think of about a thousand things I hadn't done that I need to get done. When I think about the Lord's coming is near, I think about there are people I need to talk to. There are sermons I want to preach. There's a book I want to write. There's all kinds of things. When I think the Lord's coming is near, it doesn't give me patience. It, It makes me anxious. So what is he talking about? I must be misunderstanding. Well, he answers that question with an illustration right in the middle of that section. So verse seven, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. And here's how he describes it. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until he receives the early and the late rains. He says, be patient like a farmer is patient. Now that means something different than just sitting back and not doing anything, right? How is a farmer patient? Well, farmers are about the hardest working people in America. Right? If you've got a big farm, if you've got all these fields, you've got to work them. You, it's, it's hard work. You've got to be out there. You've got to be out there when the sun comes up. And you've got to be out there all day and you've got to work. And you've got to work every day. To be a farmer is hard work. So what does he mean when he says be patient like a farmer? Well, it means that you do the two things that a, farmer, a good farmer does. Number one, you work really hard. You work really hard. God has stuff for us to do. This be patient doesn't mean stop working. You need to work really hard. But a farmer knows 
that ultimately God brings the harvest, right? He needs to work really hard, but then he has to wait for God to send the rain. It's a partnership. There's what, what the farmer does, and there's what, what God does. And the farmer can't say, I'm not going to work this year. I'm not going to plant. I'm not going to work in the fields. If he does, there'll be no harvest. But the farmer also can't supply the rain. He has to wait on God. So he has to work and he has to trust. I think for some of us, this is the hardest part of what James is commanding us to do right here. For me, this is the hardest part. I'll just give you an inside look at your pastor. I need to learn the patience uh, of of a farmer. I am constantly worried uh, that I'm not doing enough. You you feel like that sometimes? I I am constantly worried that I'm not accomplishing enough, that the crops aren't growing fast enough. Now, we need to work hard. And I think if a pastor doesn't work hard, you ought to get another pastor. If a pastor doesn't go home tired at the end of every day, you need another pastor. Okay? I believe in working hard. But I, I need to learn the lesson of patience. I feel like in my life, and I'm sharing this about me because I, I think God will use it in your life. I feel like sometimes I've been having a midlife crisis since I was 20 years old. <laughs> I mean, I'm just in a panic all the time. But what does this passage say? Be patient like a farmer. Do what God has told you to do. To know what to do and not to do it is sin. But then trust God to give you the harvest. Now, let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I want to challenge you with with one statement. It's easy to live the ordinary Christian life, to just do it like everybody else. But the ordinary Christian life is not the normal Christian life. The ordinary Christian life is is living much of our lives as if God's not a part of it at all. Making plans, spending money as if God's just not a part of the equation. Would you talk to the Lord now And say, I don't want to live an ordinary Christian life. I want to live a normal Christian life. I want to do it God's way. I want to remember God's in control of my life. I want to do the things I know I ought to do. I want to measure things differently. And I want to to have the patience of a farmer. Father, teach us, teach us not to settle for the ordinary, but to strive to live the normal way your scripture tells us to live. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.